0: Jalen Jacoby, The After Show, is proudly presented by State Farm. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: And now, Jalen and Jacoby.
0: Welcome to Jalen Jacoby, The After Show, presented by State Farm. Jalen, we're focusing on Episode 7, and Episode 7 began with Jerry Krause saying that there is no backstabbing going on. And so Jerry Krause was very prominent in Episode 1 and 2, but now he is back. And every time I see him, I get so mad, Jalen, why did Jerry Krause have to do this? Why was this the last dance to this day? Like Deontay Wilder, to this day, I'm so upset about this. <laughs> so um, as somebody that
2: played for the Bulls post-Michael and saw all of the characters, media relations in the doc, trainers in the doc that clearly had a jealousy toward the power field Michael and Scotty had and a loyalty to Jerry Krause that they were more organization and that's why they were winning versus the greatness of the players. Like when I, when I see this Jacoby, it's, Mm -hmm. it's really tough because MJ shattered a lot of dreams, like the big pun song, like that really happened. And watching how that was his goal you know what I'm saying, but also how he was unapologetic about it. It sometimes makes you feel like you should have thrown another elbow or did something <laughs> else like a flagrant foul to him. But as Scotty started to ascend and Phil started to gain confidence, they became unbeatable, man. And.
0: They really did, and this this episode uh, focused on Michael Jordan not just leaving, but also what happened with the Bulls while he was gone, which is sort of a forgotten thing about the Bulls' legacy. And there's also the passing of his father, and Michael Jordan himself gets a little little emotional at the end of this episode. And to break all of that down, like we always do, we're going to bring in Jason Hare, the director of The Last Dance. <laughs> Scotty and Mike, Kobe and Shaq, LeBron and Wade, just a few of NBA duos that are undeniably the real deal. There's a lot of duos in the league in, right now, Jalen. A lot of people point to AD and LeBron. But you know who I got my eye on? The future duo. Next three, four years. Luca and love Luka. You know I love Luca and KP. There's so many great duos in the NBA right now. Draft a State Farm agent to your team and get help combining the ultimate duo, which is home and auto insurance. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're all in the same boat, stuck in our homes during a quarantine, joining our friends on Zoom calls. We all know there's a lot going on right now in the world, and we're all shopping online as we stay at home. I just saw that AT&T started doing two really helpful things for those who want to buy a new phone or device online. They're offering fast, free, no-contact delivery and curbside pickup so that online shopping is simple and safe as possible. On top of that, they have a flexible return policy so you can shop at ease. You can visit att.com to learn how to shop online from the safety of your home 24-7. Subject to change. Like we always do at this time, it is time we bring in the director of The Last Dance and our friend, Jason Air, Jason, welcome back to Jalen Jacoby, The After Show. I want to start with you in Episode 7, where Episode 7 started, with a gentleman by the name of Jerry Krause. And he started this episode with him saying, there's no backstabbing going on. Almost, almost <laughs> disrespected by the question. What was the decision making to start this episode that
1: way? We had that piece of footage um, from the very outset two years ago when we were going through all this, I think you hear that audio actually in the opening animation of the show. There's no mm-hmm. backstabbing going on here. Um, and as soon as I saw it, I said, when is that from? Because I knew that chronologically we wanted to hold it until that moment in the, in the 97, 98 season came up, which turned out to be the beginning is actually literally on the eve of the playoffs that they, they held that press conference. So we ended episode six uh, cliffhanging the beginning of the playoffs. And we figured we'd kick it off there. I also loved the kicker at the end of it, the way to go, Craig, um, I just thought it was a great way to do it. that. And that's Craig Sager, rest in peace, his voice. Uh, but our editor found that I saw that clip and never noticed that. I just noticed Jerry walking off and inevitably there was someone in the edit room and I'd be like, Oh, what do you think of that? And we discussed like what it was until our editor, Devin Kincannon was sitting in an edit room by himself. He then cut that sequence showed it to me, and he had that subtitle in there, and we all died laughing. And um, there are a couple of the partners who actually <laughs> wanted to take that out, which I thought was sacrilege, and, and we ended up winning that fight, and we kept it in.
2: Congratulations, Jason. Trending all over the place. Documentary blowing up, giving us quality material to watch while everybody's quarantined. And you're going deeper into the box score, and one of the relationships that you highlighted was the one between Michael Jordan and his father. As somebody that never met his biological father, why was it so very important to you to
1: make sure that that played heavily in these episodes? Michael's relationship with his dad was extraordinary. Whether he was a celebrity or if he wasn't a celebrity, his dad was, was more than his dad. He was one of his best friends, if not his best friend and, and given uh, that we showed earlier in the series, you saw in episode two, how difficult it was to get his dad's attention, to get that affection that he wanted from his dad, to get the approval he wanted from his dad, and how that drove his competitive spirit. The, the, the roots of Michael's fierce competitiveness, which we see later on in the episode, were born. The seed was planted when Larry got more attention, his brother, than he did from his dad. So they, their arc, we tried to just kind of plant seeds throughout the series, showing that his dad was always there, is right next to him. When he, when he uh, won the title in '91, he uh, was right there for him when he decided to do the media blackout, and he spoke for him in '93. In that the, was dope. The um, and then I really wanted people to understand why it was so significant. It, it was the thing that pushed Michael over the edge and actually made him leave the game of basketball. So this was not just that was crazy. The, not just the death of a father; it, it, it's the horrific death of a father amidst this maelstrom of. Uh, media scrutiny. And, you know, the, the world was kind of closing in around him. And then that tragedy happens to him and his family. And then some irresponsible journalists want to question whether or not he was somehow responsible for such a horrible, uh, horrific incident. So um, we thought it was, was imperative just to to establish just how close they were as much as we could early in the episode.
0: So for people that are old and washed up like me, we remember this happening. And I always remember the rumors, but it always just kind of seemed like bar conversations with your friends where you would speculate about the potential of his gambling somehow having playing a role in his father's death. But when you watch the documentary, you see this was actually printed publications that were running with this kind of speculation. And after watching the previous episodes about the the media pressure and the fan pressure and the experience of being Michael Jordan, not being as fun as you would want it to be, not wanting to be like Mike, how much role do you think that that media coverage had to do with him deciding to leave the game of basketball?
1: hundred percent. I think that, that he had, as Mark Vancell says, I think that he had decided in 1992 that he wanted to leave, but being the competitor that he is, he wanted to win three in a row because magic Larry and Isaiah had not done so. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then after that he was done, but, but inside and outside of that locker room, I think that he, he had pretty much had enough and he was, he was spent. Um, so then for this, this tragedy to befall his family and then to have to even answer for it. I mean, there's, we didn't have time to put all of the, the, uh, scrutiny that he was under at that point, uh, in the doc, but there were people who were saying Michael Jordan owes us an explanation. He owes <laughs> us side of the story. He didn't owe you anything. He just went through the worst thing you can go through as a son to lose your father and best friend in, in such a violent way. So. I think he had had it at that point. And he he always promised his dad that, that he was going to try and play baseball. He had discussed his last discussions, as he said in the doc, that his last discussions with his father were about playing baseball. So this was his way of grieving. Jason, you got a chance
2: to sit in the room with him and exclusively do these interviews. So I'm going to ask you a question a little deeper as it relates to that process. The best player that has ever played basketball, everybody knew that at that point, Just won three championships and lost his father, walked away from the game and played baseball. How emotional was it as he told those stories?
1: It's the most reticent that I had seen him. It's the most subdued that I had seen him in the course of the three interviews. And Mm. it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's the most human he was because I don't care who you are, you can be superhuman or you can be just. Joe Smith walking down the street anonymous. If you're talking about the death of your dad and he was really close to you and you're talking about it in such a horrific way, you're going to be subdued. You're going to be reluctant to, 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 and Michael, as you know, um, isn't that generous with his emotions? He, he's not, uh, he's not an open book. So he knew those questions were coming. Obviously he knows we're going to tackle these subjects, uh, at some point during our interview process. Um, so I think it was difficult for him. It was. It was definitely. It wasn't awkward. It wasn't like this tense moment in the room. Is he going to get up and walk out? I never thought that I was going. to I tried to to ask those as as considerately as I could and as respectfully as I could. Um, but you don't know. You have no idea. I, I don't know, Michael. I'm not a friend of his, so it feels really inappropriate for me to be asking him about this. So I'm, I'm almost. I don't want to say I'm asking apologetically, mm. but but mm-hmm. you really have to come at it from a a, a sensitive perspective, because right. if someone came up to him in a bar or something and asked him about this, he'd tell them get away, you know, at least. Um So I just felt like I needed to. It, it's inappropriate to be asking someone about that, but we have to do it if we're going to tell a responsible story. So it was it was uh, delicate.
0: Well, jumping around a little bit, just because you gave that answer um, at the end of this episode, episode seven, uh, he gets a little emotional. And you mentioned earlier that he was a little concerned about how he would be portrayed and how people would feel about the way he treats his teammates. What was it like being in the room while discussing that?
1: That was um stunning because that only took place 45 minutes into our first interview with him. So we're 45 minutes into an eight hour, year and a half process. <laughs> I met him. Nine months before that um, and started kind of planting seeds for we're going to go places that may be uncomfortable, etc. And in my limited exposure to him, seeing how he treated me and how he treated those around him, I saw him as a nice guy. And I know that that reputation is not one that is, that's not the first adjective that comes to mind when people start describing the Michael Jordan that they know from the image that's that's portrayed, you know, on television and on the internet and all that. If you Google Michael Jordan, nice guy, (laughs) I'm serious. We we tried this because we had discussion about this process. That's a good one. I'm serious. You're not going to get this plethora of stories about how nice Michael Jordan is. If you Google Michael Jordan, nice guy, you actually get the opposite of that. Um, and I was interested in dispelling that myth or, or giving him the opportunity to at least because in my experience, he was respectful to, to everyone that he dealt with, including me and my crew. So I knew that I want, I still have the, the sheet of paper, um, or the 11 sheets of paper that I went into that interview with, uh, <laughs> and I was just looking at them, f- uh, for reference the other day and it's on like the second page. It's early in the interview. Um, but it is, you know, is all that intensity and all the success that you've achieved worth the cost of being perceived as a nice guy? Because by and large, in my estimation, you are not. Um, And I you can see his expression. I think he was a little bit surprised by the question or like he almost had this look like, well, I think I'm a nice guy. I don't know. And then (laughs) he started to get more and more intense. And by the end of that, I mean, it's 45 minutes into the first interview he was tearing up and he had that again, mm-hmm. that finger I told you guys about in the first time I met him, that huge finger that comes out <laughs> bends a foot and a half, you put that finger up and started to choke up and I could see a tear in the corner of his eye. And I'm thinking like, what is going on here? But it's funny if you talk about, like, what are the things that elicit that kind of emotion from him showing him his mom reading a letter home from him his mom's Mm -hmm. voice his mom's face family elicits emotion from him and his philosophy how he lives his life defending that he is so adamant about that that he gets emotional about it and he said he finished and he put his hand up and he said break and he leaned up and got out of his chair and I got up, there was a a bathroom behind me and I I got up too and I didn't know where to go because I was blocked by the light. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll just go in here for a little bit and and, and chill out. I went in there, I remember sitting there just like splashing water in my face. Like that's a moment that that is going to be a powerful moment in this documentary. I don't know where it's going to go. We just started this process. Um, We Mm -hmm. were two years from even anyone seeing where we are now, but it's just one of those moments. And that was preceded 20 minutes before that by his his belly laugh when I, I mentioned the traveling cocaine circus. It was like, all right, he's willing to go there. And, also to go here. and those are the two places that I was afraid that he wouldn't go, that he wouldn't be candid and tell me honest stories, and that he might not be as emotional and vulnerable um, as we wanted. And he he checked off those two boxes in the first 45 minutes. So that's where the whole project changed after that Q&A. Mm-hmm.
2: The emotion from a guy who was respectfully an equal opportunity employer as it related to pushing teammates. Scotty Burrell, he's trending right now, but for all of the wrong reasons.
1: (laughs) How how, how was it getting to know him throughout this process? Scotty is one of the nicest guys you could possibly meet. I don't know if you know him, Jalen, but exceedingly nice guy, like to the point of borderline dorkiness, just such a polite, nice dude. Um, he's a coach. Now he coaches college ball in Connecticut, not at Connecticut, but in Connecticut.
2: Dope, um, dope.
1: And also was a, a major league level pitcher as well. I don't People should look up Scotty Burrell because Scotty through high nineties, like Scotty was, was legit all-star level prospect in, in the major leagues and, and elected to go pro after winning a national title at, at UConn. Scotty Burrell is no joke he's a different human being than Michael. He's got a different DNA makeup. Um, And that was the first teammate that Michael ever mentioned the first time that I met him. When I said to him, um, why do you want to do this? And he said, I don't. And I said, why not? The first thing he said was we had a guy named Scotty Burrell. (laughs) Wow. I I remember him saying, I MF'd him up and down the court every practice. They knew they was going to need him. They knew they was going to need him. That's what he said. He said, I needed him to be tough enough that when the playoffs came, we're in the East. And he said, he mentioned Indiana and New York, who was out of it by then. But he's just talking about the East in the 90s. Indiana, New York, and the Miamis of the East. I needed to know that I could count on him. But when you see this footage, you're going to take it out of context, et cetera, et cetera. So that's when, that was the, what started that conversation with us about how I assured him there would be context. And we talked to Scotty too. Scotty and Michael are good friends. Scotty goes to Michael's house every summer and plays golf with him. Like they, good for Scotty. He you knows
2: Michael Jordan, got championship rings, <laughs> yeah. playing with the Bulls. That could have been my spot. They could now, have traded <laughs> for me and Sean Kemp and let Scotty Pippen go in 94. That's what Cross was trying to do, Jason.
1: Wow, well, is that true? yeah oh man that would have been so, nice Jim, you know I just explain,
0: again the, explain again the potential trades you this is important
2: the night before the draft jason and i want you to hear this jerry Krause calls me in my hotel room i'm popping a bump underneath my left eye i'm so focused on it it was the biggest pimple on the big <laughs> biggest day of my life i couldn't believe this was happening to me the phone ring is jerry Krause. he's asking me questions about chicago have i ever been and You know, what do I think about coming to play there and all of that stuff? And how would I like to be a part of their legacy? And, you know, he was just letting me know. And then he's like, what do I think about Sean Kemp? And I was like, Sean Kemp? I was like, like, it's an animal, you know what I'm saying? Like, get a chance to play with him? I was like, cool. So I came front. I went to bed the night before my draft thinking that they were going to swap picks and I was going to go to the Bulls with – Sean Kemp and Jerry Cross are going to trade Scottie Pippen. 94 when Michael Jordan was playing baseball.
0: Mm. Wow. I wish that happened because you would have definitely been one of the teammates that Michael Jordan punched in the face <laughs> during practice. Like <laughs> without question, without question, you would have definitely been one of those teammates. Now, you want to Jeff- slip that. Every Sunday night we do this, and I know that you really just want to talk about the musical selections in, in the film that you Correct. made. Correct, yes. You were so excited about Fantastic Voyage. Like, you were so hype on Coolio. Oh, because, like, 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 yo, I, I mean, so that's mainstream. mainstream. Like, people been sleep teasing on Coolio. It. You've been teasing it.
1: Why? Were I you did so not. Excited? I gave you a hint as to what it was. It didn't mean that I was psyched about it. And listen, all respect to Coolio. No disrespect to Coolio. Um, great rapper, great chef, great human being. <laughs> all I did was tell you that there was a West Coast gangster rapper with dreadlocks who was going to have a prominent song in episode 7. That's all I said. That was a spur of the moment like we need a little bit of energy in this episode decision. Mm-hmm. Some of these things like Rakim LL Tribe Outcast, I've been thinking of those songs for years that we were going to use them in those spots. Coolio was literally Me sitting in the edit, watching the baseball section, trying to put music under it, finding nothing that really powered it along and thinking we need something here and literally Googling 1994, 1995 hip hop. And what's the least Mm. obvious? Like we're not going to like there was there was Domino was in there. There was um, (laughs) there were so many songs that like just kind of didn't fit. And then Fantastic Voyage was like, all right, it's not so mainstream that it's poppy and soft, it's not so poppy and soft that it's obvious, and it's a great beat, and it actually helped. That Michael's on a fantastic voyage down down in Birmingham trying out a new sport. Yeah, he was. And it is indelible to that era. So I was like, you know what? I'm the one who said this checklist. It checks enough of the boxes. Let's try it. And then as soon as Terry Francona speaks, that beat kicks in. And also, it was it was the clincher was. Um, if you can't take the heat, get your ass out the kitchen was that little blonde headed kid try, trying to get the autograph with that. Lyric. <laughs> Michael peeling out. It was like, all right. This kid, this kid didn't know he was going to be in a documentary 30 years later. And he certainly didn't think he was going to be under a profane rap lyric. So let's give him a, let's give him a thrill. That guy's probably 40 years old now, wherever he is, but, so- um, that was that selection process.
2: Absolutely. So Jason, of course, going on multiple shows, get up sports center, all of that. They're going to ask me about the content of the doc, but I want to talk more about the music because that's trending right now, you know? So what happens in your texts via email, people in the industry, when they hear the soundtrack to this documentary, do they hit you up about other projects? Do they, tell you that you're killing it with the music? Like, how does it go when certain songs have been played? Because during the Fab Five doc, I know certain songs, when it was like slam, people was hitting me up. So Mm -hmm.
1: what is that reception like? People hit you up because you're Jalen Rose. No one even knows how to say my last name. and (laughs) They're not hitting me up, no. But biggest thrill for me, honestly. I mean, it's cool to see it resonating with so many people. That's really cool because I didn't think that, that a lot of people would appreciate it the way that they have, especially people who are from that era saying that like the music from that era resonates with them. That's awesome. Um, the New York Times did a piece a few days ago and LL and Kumo D were in the piece talking Mm. about the doc. That is like pinch me moment. Dope. Because my brothers and I used to listen to that stuff. Brandon and Paul, shout out to Brandon and Paul Hare. We used to listen to that stuff in our, in our, bedroom with there were certain they didn't even play it on radio stations back then there was only a certain room in our house that you could get the emerson college radio station and they played hip hop for two hours a week on friday night i think it was 95.3 and my brother had the only radio in the house that could get that and we would re- hit record and they'd play 12 hip hop songs and then you take that to school and it was like contraband this was like stuff like it's like Seeing a new color for the first time. Like this, I don't think we'll ever see a new genre of music be birthed in front of us.
2: But what about the love? You hear that, youngsters? The only radio in the house that could get that station. Do you understand what that means? That's dedication. Okay. I woke and up. That flipping the dial,
1: flipping the dial, flipping the dial. Uh, like this. You have to, like, it's surgical. I remember there was a <laughs> Saturday morning and um, it was Video Vibrations or Video Soul was on BET. And it was like 7 or 8 in the morning. must have been a rerun from the night before. And they, they played a video for The Freaks Come Out at Night. Houdini. Mm, Houdini classic. Houdini didn't even know what those guys looked like because we only had the, the cover of that album. And they were like posed in the 80s hip-hop pose. But we had never seen them actually like moving around. I woke my brother up. Brandon was asleep upstairs. And I went upstairs and I shook him up. You got to come down and see this. Like, huh, 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 huh. yeah. Or the first time the Rockbox video came on, that black and white video was like, "There's rap on MTV right now. What is happening in this world?" So, obviously, that's the passion that I have for that music and that era and that culture, and to bring it to the to that's the show cool. and to see it resonating with people, um, it's great. Kumod cool said we used the wrong version of the song. Modi, we <laughs> wanted to use the right version of the song. Ching. We could not clear the Cha-ching. sample. I know how it works. Cha-ching. Give me the sample and I will re-edit the song myself for free. <laughs> but, couldn't do it. I still kept it in, modi, so you shouldn't be complaining. <laughs> uh,
0: J- Jason, one thing this experience of watching this every Sunday has sort of brought to the forefront is just not just the story of Michael Jordan, but so many other prominent stars are involved in his story. And frankly, he's blocked so many prominent stars from winning championships. We mm-hmm. see it over and over every single Sunday night. But this Sunday in Episode 7, we watched the story of a famous moment in Scottie Pippen's career when a final shot was drawn up for Tony Kukoc, not him, and he did knock it off the bench. And it also sort of reminded me of – isaiah thomas and not shaking hands and like these singular moments where maybe they didn't show the most the best character or represent themselves perfectly but they have to talk about them 30 years later and these moments of misjudgment sort of get stamped on their character in eternity what's it like discussing that with them in the room and how do you think that affects their
1: lives to this day especially with scotty not coming
0: off the bench in that
1: moment um it's definitely sensitive to bring up because again i don't know these people and oftentimes it's the only time I'm ever going to meet them before or after that. Like I've never met Scotty before. I don't know if I'll ever ever run into him again. I hope I do because I have the utmost respect for him and the respect he showed for us, the time he gave us. All these guys, none of these guys had to sit down. No one made a dime from this. There was like they could have all hung up on us, and we got 106 people to say yes. So That's shout dope. out to everybody for doing that. Um, with Scotty, it's difficult. I was I came at it with a sense of curiosity because I honestly was curious. Like, w- would you do it again? Tell me that story from your perspective, and and are, do you have regrets about it? Um, what was interesting about this one, and and we had to decide how to what to include in the edit, and because everyone defends him, Steve Kerr comes to his defense. Bill Cartwright eventually comes to his defense, and he made that famous speech in the locker room. And and uh, Bill Wennington, someone says that everybody was crying it depends who you ask exactly mm-hmm. what went on in that closed door meeting but clearly um it's something that happened and made them stronger because at practice the next day you can see that everyone's hanging out with Scotty like nothing's wrong they did win the game so that helped uh and and shout out to tony for actually making that shot what an incredible shot yeah. i think that that goes that goes missed that tony hit that completely shot. completely different narrative too wow. if he misses that shot oh my god man like I, I still that story is so notorious that people hopefully not after this it'll be a, a ubiquitous enough story that he did hit the shot and they won the game but people say yeah remember when he sat out and they lost that game because he wouldn't take the shot like that's how notorious that story is a lot of people mm-hmm. don't remember that they won then he had the famous dunk over ewing right after that and and boom again he's like chicago's favorite son with with michael out of town um but he curiously said that he would do it again in the interview huh as Mm. you know in the doc he says that and he was vague about it but it was like and i tried to double back on it and say so wait if you had it to do it over again he said yeah i would have i would have um how did he, he phrase it? Because he said, I, th- he, I think he said, I would have stood up again, meaning like I would have stood up to them and sat down. So it was a prepositional, like confusing preposition, but for all these guys to defend him. And then for him to say, I would have done the same thing. Uh, it was difficult. It was like, do we even include Scotty saying that? Do we want to, do we want to dilute what these guys are saying about him? So we he ended up just putting all of it in. I asked him and I'm still curious if Michael was there, if he was in the building, not on the team, but if he was sitting behind the bench in the second row, would you have done that? Mm. And I don't Mm. – he said he would have done the same thing. I'm still curious. I don't know. That's an interesting hypothetical because I think that Michael Mm. cast such a shadow over that team. Michael called Phil and said he's never going to live that down, ever. And Phil was heartbroken because – Wow. So – um, it's definitely sensitive, but it's, it's something that we look forward to telling because it's such a Michael heavy documentary at this point, we're supposed to be about all the bulls, but there's so much Michael business to get to. But we, um, we, there was a version of episode seven and eight that did not have the bulls without Michael storyline in it. Cause we had so much to get to with, uh, the murder of James Jordan and Michael's decision to leave and addressing all the conspiracy theories as much as we could, because that's something I really, really wanted to be sure that we did. My brother Paul is a lawyer down in Miami and I actually went over my question <laughs> with him. Um, that That's I'm, a vet move. I'm never going to match wits with David Stern. He's one of the, the, maybe the brightest person I've ever met in my life and, and rest in peace, David Stern. Uh, but I wanted to be sure that he couldn't verbally say later on, well, I didn't exactly say this, didn't exactly say that. So did Michael Jordan leave the NBA of his own volition in 1993? And the answer, he said, yes, he did. So I believe him, I, and I think, you know, a, a lot of times, as I've said before, these conspiracy theories are way simpler than you think they are. It's fun to conjecture about it, but um, I, I believe that this guy was was spent and grieving and needed to reset in a dozen different ways.
0: Well, um, much like Michael Jordan left the NBA and then came back shortly after, you're about to do the same thing. You mind sticking yeah, around and talking to us about episode eight in a little bit? I'm gonna yes. go. Take, I'm gonna go take yes.
1: some tea. Take a few th- swings, get outside, and I'll be back.
0: <laughs> and that's going to do it for episode seven of Jalen and Jacoby, the after show. But don't go anywhere. Episode eight is available right now. So grab a blanket, settle in, and we'll see you on this side.